Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hi, I'm Joan Frank, and I'm about to read to you from my new novel, Make It Stay, published by the Permanent Press. Make It Stay takes place in the tree-nestled northern California town of Miraflores, where writer Ray, an aging typist with an unprofitable hobby, and her Scottish husband Neil prepare dinner for a familiar crew of guests, among them Neil's best friend, the burly, handsome Mike Spender, an irrepressible hedonist, and Mike's wife, the troubling Tilda Crawl, a hard-bitten figure who carries her dark unknowability like an accusation. Mike and Tilda have produced an enchanting daughter, Addie, who will also appear unexpectedly that night. As they ready the meal, Ray begs Neil to retell the strange, twisted story of the Spenders, including Mike's secret life and what happened once Tilda learned of it. Make it stay. It was Neil who first knew them. Long ago, he claims it feels. Says the 70s seem ancient now. In 1974, Neil was 19, Mike 24. Neil worked in the legal aid office two doors down from Mike's aquarium shop. Finney business. Mike always thought the name brilliantly hilarious. That part of him never changed. How he made any kind of living at the place, no one could figure. A dusty town, Miraflores was then, according to Neil. Many streets still unpaved. Smells of furs, wisteria, jasmine in summer. Quiet like you don't find now. Light so clean you could taste it, and no one locked their doors. Someone said that in those years you could shoot a gun down the middle of the street and never hit a thing. People born here believed the town floated, brigadoon-like, outside conventional time and space. A twinkling, twirling sphere, perpetual, self-contained. For a while, it must have seemed that way. Each morning, Mike leaned in his shop's open doorway, smoking. He smoked the way he did everything else, with calm abandon, eyeing the street, blinding passers-by with his grin. Mike seemed to know everyone. God knew it was impossible not to notice him. That laugh alone, a thundercrack. It scared the unwary, made them jump and look around. Neil claimed the sound penetrated the glass doors of the legal aid lobby. The laugh, the bad puns, the jolly giant physique, strawberry beard, the BMW motorcycle called Black Beast, later the bald head. Cartoon, people joked, impossible corn, direct from central casting. The brawn, the boom, the big daddiness, so over, as the young now pitilessly say. But back then, it impressed people. I suppose that is part of the paradox. Mike's care of his fish, Neil says, was tender. Neil slipped over to the store every lunch hour just to check it out. Inside was dark and cool. Glass tanks of different sizes bubbled, their algae smell twisting up your nostrils, yeasty, an acrid overlay of chemicals like fertilizer. Tank facades mirrored white daylight till you faced them head on when they revealed a series of clear, rippling worlds bejeweled with living exotica. Freshwater and marine, from the glass catfish 
transparent wraiths whose backlit spines and guts made a 3D anatomical display, to the dull but demanding piranhas, isolated, of course, like other attack-minded breeds, soot-colored mollies, clownfish. One silvery blink, called a top-sword guppy, peer at it close hand, you saw it was painted with bright circles of red, green, yellow, like a Picasso print. Harlequins, discus, sword-tail. The names were quirky, the appearances surpassing. Zebrafish, pencilfish, pike-tops. Siamese fighters, their diaphanous fantails orange and blue, like floor ruffles on evening gowns. Schools of Cardinal Tetra. Neon crimson streaks in perfect spatial unison. The Tetra always drew a crowd. Their illusion, that of a single, shape-shifting, electrified thing zipping about. Mike had studied marine biology. No degree, but he lived at the library, meaning between high school and joining the Navy at 19. Though he'd lucked out with a low draft lottery number, he enlisted for an 18-month tour, serving as his ship's newspaper reporter, which spared him Vietnam combat, and had just completed it when his father died at 60 of a stroke. That was 1971. His mother apportioned some of the life insurance to her only child. That's how Mike could set up his store. He flew west to visit a Navy chum who'd been staying with family in Miraflores. The town delighted him, warmer and drier all year than any of his New England experience, blazing with multicolored flowers and trees, peaceful, pretty. Not least, the Northern California coastline was only a 40-minute drive. This is it, Mike told Neil boastfully when they began talking. This is your last stop. You'll never want to leave. His authority fairly clubbed you. Not just the shelves behind the register packed with titles, Dictionary of Tropical Fish, Breeding in Captivity, The Nitrogen Cycle, or the milk crates of tropical fished hobbyists stacked by date. Mike buttonholed anyone who wandered in. Despite his circus strongman looks, there was also in his manner something of the cracker-barrel sage, the type who once shod horses, dispensed aspirin and penny candy, thrust a tumbler of homebrew into your hand, color of dark tea, laceratingly alcoholic, and rich as jam. You know, he'd rumble from behind them, startling customers, fish have been around a little longer than we have, 250 million years. People would back out of the store, nodding. The rudest shrugged and walked off. Mike took up his recital unfazed with the next innocent browser. Neil, fascinated, watched this happen again and again. Since the days he'd squatted, a skinny kid beside Cape Cod tide pools, Mike had revered water life. No detail too small. Take the false eye, he'd begin, on the rear dorsal fin of the marine betta. The fish resembles an owl's wing, its real face invisible. Predators bite toward the eye to avoid getting scales and spines stuck in their throats. But if they strike at the false eye of the betta, here Mike's own brown-black eyes sparkled, they'll only get a mouthful of finnage, he quoted from his tropical fish identifier as from a beloved fairy tale. And the betta will regrow its fin and live to fight another day. Neil found himself dawdling in the store after lunch, entertained by Mike's spiel. He didn't care a damn about the fish, then or now, but couldn't help marvel at this man who resembled a bouncer at a strip club, tending his aquatic pets like a monk. 
In those days, when he had no one else yet to pay for, Mike left Finney Business every year for a week or two in the care of a young assistant and traveled half the world to dive for his rarest wares, the Marquesas Tuamotus, air freighting the specimens back. In 1976, Neil flew to Tahiti for a couple of weeks to visit Mike a few days. I've made him tell me the story more than once. He'd finagled reduced airfare by waiting standby for a flight chartered by a soccer team. This resourcefulness did not surprise me. Neil emigrated to our vineyard town aiming to pass the California bar in turning at legal aid. He meant to practice here, and Scottish law did not transfer. Funny, thinking of the young Neil. Thinner, paler, kinky ginger hair and an afro. Brits say ginger instead of red. There are so many kinds of red hair, some more pleasing than others. Neil's is a deep mercurochrome with caramel mixed in. Tall. Spectacles. If you know the Irish actor Stephen Ray, that face is Neil's, including the funny, squared-off nose. A gentle, sad expression, as if all the world's problems swirled inside him, and he's bitterly sorry he's not yet been able to fix them. I can see him waiting alone in the splintering boat, chin in hand like some bewildered schoolmaster, after Mike heaved himself over the edge. That weight frightened Neil. He'd hoped, after emigrating, never to have anything more to do with cold water than drink a glass of it. Not that Polynesian water was cold, of course. It was perfection, cool, jewel-blue. But that glittering afternoon, after Mike had maneuvered his craft through the shallows, a quarter-mile of coral edged the island like lace trim, and turned off his engine, the water became another thing. Razor-blue. So brilliant to gaze on, Neil said, you felt the pupils of your eyes contract. When you looked down into it, the blue went black. The moist air smelled of salt, copra, manoi tiare, the gardenia, coconut oil, women smeared on their hair and skin, no one having the mistiest notions then of words like carcinoma or ozone hole, and something more, a faint but pervasive stink, a sweetish rotting. Neil sat in the boat, hatless, poor ignorant boy, under a white sun so powerful it seemed to be obliterating matter after Mike slipped beneath the surface of blue silk. Mike dove without tanks, using only flippers, face mask, pole net, plastic bags tucked into the waistband of his trunks. Since Neil couldn't see anything, he could only wait the wooden plank hard under his bony bum, squinting at green-furred mountains, white sky, sapphire water. What is seldom conveyed by tourist board photos, he told me, is the sense of desolation, of ancient, lush decay. Sun like burning paste. Neil hunched, gripping his knees, listening to the plish, plish of seawater licking the hull, almost shivering with worry. Shore was too far to shout to. Even with the spectacles he kept poking up against his nose, he couldn't make anyone out from that distance. If Mike didn't return soon, should Neil try to pilot the boat back to get help? He'd never touched a boat's motor in his life. He'd never touched a lawnmower's motor. And the coral network in the shallows, what if it raked open the hull? Neil didn't like admitting it, but he could not swim. The coral might rake him open. Sharks would come. They could smell blood. He'd read that. And wouldn't help be too late, even if he managed to find any? I winced to picture him, sweat beating on his pinking scalp, pink blotches spreading over his long, white legs. 
He had the blessed wits, as he puts it, to take off his specs and place them on the bench before leaning his face and then his torso over the boat's side, trying to see anything. It made the backs of his legs tingle, having the top half of him cantilevered over the water, like that. Plish, plish, went the ocean against the hull. Young Neil next thought he would try to place his face directly onto the water, cool himself a little, maybe open his eyes once there for a better look around. So he kneeled on the boat's rim, believing his feet, braced against the hull, would stabilize him. And then, of course, the boat tipped, and over he went. His torso just got the better of his legs, was all. Neil was certain he would die. Thrashing and spluttering, pumping his legs underwater like a bicyclist, he managed to grab the boat's rim, making the craft list violently, but not so much that it took on significant water. Neil held on, bicycling, panting, praying. That is, he recalls, bargaining. Whatever deals an irreligious man pleads for when he's about to become shark food. He began chanting in his mind, Get back here, get back here, get back here. Oh, please, get back here now, 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 damn it. And at last, eternities to Neil, came the geyser boom of spray, the great gasped inhale, and Mike's shining blonde head broke the surface. His face glistened, eyes popped, heaving air, a sound like a jet turbine. One huge, slick brown forearm hooked the boat's side, depositing three knotted plastic bags on the bench at the far end. Then two boulder-sized arms planted themselves, and in a single heave, Neil admiring, despite himself, the upper body strength it took, Mike flopped himself over the edge, panting and dripping. Without even yanking off his flippers, he turned, praised his feet against the boat's sides, took hold of one of Neil's forearms with both his hands, and hoisted straight up. Neil banged his shins pretty badly being pulled in. A trickle of blood and painful purple gashes announced the fact afterward. He still bears a tiny crescent-shaped scar on each shin if you look closely amid the coppery down. But while it happened, he could only bless Mike's easy power, hauling him up and in like an awkward giant catch. Thought we'd have ourselves a little cool-off dip, Mike said. Then he began to laugh, still breathless from his dive, tremendous shouts of laughter. Neil was spitting water, eyes stinging with salt, shins hurting like hell and bleeding. Speechless with embarrassment, he hung his head, yet could not keep a stupid smile from infiltrating his face because Mike's merriment held no cruelty. The three bags sat wetly on the boat's floor, clear squarish balloons, listing a bit. Forgetting his shame and the pain in his shins, Neil groped for his wet but intact specks to peer closer. Inside, the bags wiggled three small beings of the sort seen on nature documentaries. Mike may as well have rocketed to another galaxy and back with his catch. Two of the creatures, Neil learned later, were a species of angelfish. Velvet black, elegantly striped, two laser-thin lines of electric blue. Their fins trailed elaborate, thready tendrils curling at the tips. The third was a disk of saturated lemon, thin as a coin, flitting and flashing in its water package in the sun. The purity of its yellow, a shock. It struck Neil harder then than in all his gray youth, how slavishly the eye follows color. These living beings from another continuum, hopelessly fragile, would sell very well if they survived the air travel. 
To celebrate, never mind Neil's near drowning, the young men bought some Hinano beer on their way back in a Toyota pickup, sun-bleached the color of bone, to the frond-roofed shack Mike used. Neil never discovered whose shack it was, nor where the old truck had come from. Rule one, Mike never had money, meaning he spent everything he earned. He may have plied his local contacts with beer or fish or goofy charm. Maybe part of the deal was that he never stayed long. Neil describes a sky going teal, then ink, air raucous with bullfrogs, one constant streaming, multi-part chant replenished in rounds, as if different factions of the chorale were drawing breath. Night on the island came deep, stars many but distant, vaster than any Neil had known. Something pent out there, something he could smell in the blackness like raw hamburger, made him wildly glad for the hut's flimsy walls, the propane burner, the pan of onions sizzling, the greasy lantern, Mike's gunshot laugh. He watched Mike prepare poisson cru on the slab of scarred wood that served as desk, table, and cutting board. Mike's hands, oddly demure compared with the rest of him, though reddened by sun and salt, sliced the ahi thin, submerging the slices in a solution of lime juice. Soon he would add coconut milk. He paused for pulls of beer, opened his jaws for bites of baguette, mashed with wedges of vache kiri, the cheapest cheese in Papa Ete groceries. Mike was a vision then, body taut, muscled, hair white blonde, bearded grin, all feckless glamour. Neil, though pink and crisp with sunburn, felt awed, foolishly grateful for the food, the beer, for having escaped the burning blue depths of the sea, for the green stinky aloe sap on his wounds. Mike had broken a fat spine from the cactus plant and painted Neil's gashed shins with the foul-smelling, snot-like substance that oozed out clear chartreuse. It soothed instantly. All of it, as far from the world of suits and ties, filings, depositions, as he could dream. Neil's gratitude spread, watching the warm shadows thrown by the lantern into practical concern for his gentle, Tarzan-like friend. "'How long do you propose to keep doing this?' Neil asked. He was sitting on a bench in his shorts, burnt legs crossed, green-painted purple dents on each shin, balancing a brown Hinano bottle on one knee. He liked the dry, woven pandanus mat under his bare soles, sliding them back and forth against it. Doing what? Mike's arms moved everywhere, pushing green peppers around, chopping tomatoes, grand smells, crackling sounds, his shadow alert behind him. You know, the diving. Why would I stop? Mike looked up, smiling. If he forgot he had scarcely made it out of secondary school, his tone might have suggested the mild intrigue latent in a philosophical point of order. Threads of sun-white hair fell over his browned forehead. Neil watched the knife, tip steady on the wooden surface, flash up and down. Small mounds of minced green pepper foamed up on either side. I'd imagine it's, uh, rough on the health, Neil stammered. I mean, say... Once you'd got a bit older? He didn't want to sound like a pansy, a word he'd picked up in freshman months on American soil. Equivalent, he gathered, to Nancy boy. But he'd heard about divers' ailments. Depths did strange stuff to a man, stuff that could disable you. And his British education had blasted him from age 11 with the absolutes. 
You flung yourself through the obstacle course, snatched to the degree that fetched a living, pushed, 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 else you'd be left back to rot, to work a trade if any remained. Shipbuilding was dying then. Or you'd have to scrape by on the dole. You'd seen plenty of this, skin like old luggage, bad teeth, missing teeth, including the children. American largesse, its sheer serenity, baffled him. Mike blinked, still smiling, gently perplexed. He scratched his bearded cheek, the knife held slack alongside, as though he might commence shaving with it. Instead, he used the blunt end to ease the piles of minced pepper into the fragrant stir-fry. The pan's crackling report dulled a moment, then intensified. I'll do it till something better shows up. He grinned again, pleased to have dispatched the small annoyance, and revest his attention in what most mattered. And to subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.